Our scripture reading today is from 1 Samuel, chapter 27. David thought to himself, One of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do to escape the land is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Moak, king of Gath. David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. From ancient times, these peoples had lived in the land extending to Shur and Egypt. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. When Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of Jeremiel, or against the Negev of the Kenites. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Achish trusted David and said to himself, he has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Will you pray with me? Lord, thank you that your word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. As we enter into the book of Samuel again this morning, our prayer is that you, we would know you more and that you would shape and fashion us in the likeness of Christ. Amen. During my teens, I was part of a really enthusiastic Christian youth group based in my high school. And all through those years, one of the hot topics was backsliding, giving up on a fervent faith in Jesus. Uh, the word comes from the King James Version, where it's used in a number of different places, including Jeremiah and Hosea. To us, Backsliding mostly meant not attending youth group, or later, not attending church. And there's a certain truth to that. Hebrews 10 verse 25 says, 
do not give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Not participating regularly in some form of Christian fellowship can be evidence of a faith that is cooling. But backsliding can be much more significant than that. The passage in Hebrews, which that verse comes from, says, Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. Remember those earlier days after you'd received the light, when you endured in a great conflict full of suffering. Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So do not throw away your confidence. It will be richly rewarded. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you'll receive what he has promised. That's all from Hebrews chapter 10. What we're talking about then is throwing away our confidence in God, confidence that you've held to and sacrificed for in the past, believers who have been on fire for the Lord, who are now turning their back on their faith. And this can happen to anyone. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I'll slip out of his hand. Several great preachers, including R.T. Kendall, A.W. Pink, and Charles Spurgeon, argue that this chapter records the lowest point in David's life. What's striking is that it follows immediately on from one of the highest moments. In chapter 26, David has faced Saul for the last time. He has again spared his life. But he's taken Saul's spear, the symbol of his violent rages, and his water jug, the the thing most valuable for life demonstrating that Saul at that time was totally in his power. More importantly, David declares his total trust in the Lord's provision to the extent that whether, David, uh, whether Saul lives or dies is irrelevant to him. All of that is in Hebrews chapter 10. What we're talking about is throwing away a confidence in God that you've held to and sacrificed for in the past, Believers who've been on fire for the Lord, now turning back on that faith. And this can happen to anyone. David thought to himself, one of these days I will be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. Several great preachers, including R.T. Kendall, A.W. Pink, and Charles Spurgeon, argue that this chapter records the lowest point in David's life. What's striking is that it follows immediately on from one of his highest moments. 
In chapter 26, David has faced Saul for the last time. He has again spared his life, but he's taken Saul's spear, the symbol of his violent rages, and his water jug, the thing most vital for life, demonstrating that Saul was totally in his power. More importantly, David declares his total trust in the Lord's provision to the extent that whether Saul lives or dies is irrelevant to him. Even Saul ends that encounter by saying, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. Yet as chapter 27 begins, we find David saying, One of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. And the phrase he uses there, literally, I'll be swept away, is exactly what he declared about Saul only a little time earlier, that Saul would be swept away by the hand of the Lord. And this reversal of his thinking sets in motion a a downward spiral into fear, deceit, and violence. I want to identify for you this morning 12 marks of backsliding, 12 warning signs that we are not holding unswervingly to the hope we profess, and are in danger of throwing away our confidence in God. By identifying these, I hope that we'll all be better able to recognize and respond when we're in danger of shipwrecking our faith. First, the fact that this is David, whose great moments of faith have been played out before us time and again, shows us that backsliding can happen to anyone. Even great and godly leaders can make terrible mistakes, especially under the kinds of pressures that David finds himself under after years as a hunted man. God does not easily write people off, and while we shouldn't minimize their sin, nor should we write them off. The writer of the book of Samuel gives us an honest portrait of David's weaknesses, but he does not reject him, just as God does not. When it comes to the failures of others who, walking, who are walking in faith, neither our unquestioning hero worship nor our ungracious judgmentalism is helpful. Good leaders can and do make bad mistakes. Backsliding can happen to anyone. Even being a great spiritual leader is no defense. Second, doubt is common to all. Even as we try to exercise faith, we wrestle with the inner conviction that we care for ourselves. We have our own best interests at heart more than God does. Subconsciously, we believe that we know what is best for us, better than he does. So even as we speak and act boldly for the Lord, the seeds of our own plans for self-preservation are never very far from the surface. In chapter 26, as David speaks boldly to Saul, he says, Why is my Lord pursuing his servant? What have I done and what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my Lord the King listen to his servant's words. If the Lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They've driven me today from my share in the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. 
Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. I wonder if you noticed in there the evidence that David already has this idea of living in exile in mind. He's already letting it make inroads into his thinking. So that even at the moment that he's condemning those who've made him contemplate that option, you can see it has an attraction for him. It's a temptation to him for, a, for an easier life, a more peaceful life. And doubt in the Lord's provision is common to us all. And the seeds of our own plans for taking care of ourselves are never very far from the surface. Third, we are most at risk after great victory, moments of spiritual triumph, if you like. Many pastors will tell you that the, the great moments of leading people to faith or preaching a momentous sermon are often followed by their weakest times, when the temptation to sin is at its greatest, when the attacks of the enemy are at their most effective. You can certainly see the same pattern in Scripture with the most familiar example being Elijah running away after his confrontation with the priests of Baal on Mount Carmel. There are many reasons for this radical reversal, but they're all to do with the dissonance between the earthly person and the holy God that they've represented in that great moment. And we are most at risk of backsliding after a great victory, a moment of great spiritual success. Fourth, the immediate cause for David's fall, stated plainly by the writer of Samuel, is that he rests on his own understanding. This one again. David thought to himself, one of these days I'll be destroyed by the hand of Saul. The best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Then Saul will give up searching for me anywhere in Israel, and I will slip out of his hand. David thought to himself there is literally, David said to his heart. It's interesting how often David's heart is mentioned, and when it is, it's always significant. Dale Ralph Davis says the warning here is, be careful what you speak to your heart. We can speak faith to ourselves, or we can speak purely rationally, based on our own understanding, as David does here. Just as importantly, we can surround ourselves with godly voices, the voices of faith we might find in meeting with other believers in a connection group or in a Bible study. But most importantly of all, we can be listening for the voice of God. And what David doesn't do here, what is noticeably missing from his decision-making process, is prayer. Without prayer, David's rational thought process results in him resting his eyes on Saul, on his problems, not on the Lord. And that's in direct contrast with the two recent occasions on which he's come face to face with Saul, when David's eyes were firmly fixed on the Lord, and Saul had become almost an irrelevance. With his eyes on Saul, David becomes fearful, and he abandons his total trust in the Lord's provision. And like us, when we're under pressure, he makes his own plan, a plan to save himself. Verse 2, So David and the 600 men with him left and went over to Achish, son of Maok, king of Gath. 
David and his men settled in Gath with Achish. Each man had his family with him, and David had his two wives, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail of Carmel, the widow of Nabal. When Saul was told that David had fled to Gath, he no longer searched for him. David lived in Philistine territory a year and four months. David is a clear thinker, a good strategist. Humanly speaking, David's assessments in this narrative are right. Saul does stop chasing him. He and his men do find rest. He's able to collect plunder on behalf of Achish without harming Israel. Achish doesn't find out about his duplicity, and his request for a place to make a home is granted. It's easy to imagine how the approach David comes up with himself could seem full of the blessings of God. But the thought process David goes through here, resting on his own understanding and not on a prayerful vision of his circumstances, leads him to a decision that will end up costing lives and put his kingship over Israel into serious jeopardy. Proverbs 3 tells us, Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways submit to him and he will make your path straight. That doesn't mean your own understanding shouldn't come into it. Your understanding is a a God-given part of you. But you should not lean on it. That is, we shouldn't put the balance of our weight on our own thinking instead of on the Lord's direction. Be careful what you speak to your heart. Backsliding is marked by resting on your own understanding rather than a prayerful vision of reality. Be careful what you speak to your heart. Fifth, what David does here is that he prioritizes peace with the world over dependence on God. Under the pressures David is experiencing, not only the years of pursuit and deprivation, but the lack of a positive vision of the future, the obligation to treat his enemy Saul well, and the responsibility not only for his men, but their wives and families too. Under all of these pressures, it's easy to see why even joining his enemies seems to be a viable option. This is exactly the fault the writer to the Hebrews is addressing in his letter. Don't give up on the purposes of God, though you may have to suffer for a time in exchange for a temporary peace with the world that ultimately puts you in opposition to God. Backsliding holds out the false hope of peace with the world by prizing that over dependence on God. Sixth, one of the most insidious features of backsliding is that it blinds us to who our enemy is. We make the decision, not in Paul's words, to press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called us heavenwards in Christ Jesus. Because we think to to take a neutral position is to have a break from the demands of faith for a while. There's no doubt that following Jesus can be hard work. Jesus calls those who want to follow him to deny themselves, to take up their cross, to lose their life for the gospel. 
All of us have times when we would like to take a rest from the demands of discipleship. But when we do so, we're not taking a neutral position for a while. In fact, stepping back from the pursuit of Christ allies us with everything within the earth and the heavens which is resisting God. David is blind to the fact that as well as being the enemies of Saul, the Philistines are the enemies of God. Remember his words to his brothers in the face of Goliath and the Philistine army. Who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy the armies of the living God? Now he's saying, the best thing I can do is to escape to the land of the Philistines. Backsliding blinds us to who our enemy is. Seventh. As soon as David is safe and settled, of course, he's faced with the unpalatable consequences of compromise. Verse 5. Then David said to Achish, If I found favor in your eyes, let a place be assigned to me in one of the uh, country towns, that I may live there. Why should your servant live in the royal city with you? So on that day, Achish gave him Ziklag, and it has belonged to the kings of Judah ever since. Now David and his men went up and raided the Geshurites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. Whenever David attacked an area, he did not leave a man or woman alive, but took sheep and cattle, donkeys and camels and clothes. Then he returned to Achish. There are two apparent reasons for David's desire to move away from Gath to a town of his own. First, he must have been constantly reminded of having allied with the enemy. In fact, it's a mystery how he was not too embarrassed to return to Gath after his last visit, recorded at the end of chapter 21. In that visit, he pretended to be a madman, marking the doors of the gate and letting saliva run down his beard. On that occasion, Achish had not wanted him in his house. Now, David was willing to go beyond feigning insanity and appear to betray his own people in exchange for the security of a Philistine bed. He cannot have been without feelings of embarrassment, guilt, and shame. But a second reason to move away from Gath was in order for him to perpetrate the deception on Achish which he planned, for which he needed his, a base for his men far enough away from Achish's eyes and close enough to those he planned to rob. Ziklag, the town Achish agrees to give him, is a good day's journey south of Gath, where he's reporting to his new lord, bringing the plunder that he says that he's taken from the Israelites and their allies, but which in fact comes from Israel's other enemies. In all of this, you can see David working to avoid the consequences of his compromise. And turning away from the Lord always leaves us wrestling to avoid the uncomfortable aspects of our compromise. An eighth mark of backsliding is substituting our own battles for the Lord's. I cannot tell you how common I believe this is for individuals and for churches. David's job is to fight the Philistines. That is the great job of the kings of Israel during this century. It was the great job of Saul. It was the task Saul set for David. 
And despite the many changes of circumstance, this is still David's task. Because of his decision to go to Gath and seek the protection of Achish, fighting the Philistines is out of the question. His alliance with Achish is based on his delivery of plunder to the king. Achish expects David, now that he has defected from Saul's Israel to the Philistines, to collect that plunder from the Israelites, the enemies of the Philistines. David, no longer able to do the work of the Lord for the people of God, instead attacks other minor enemies of Israel, other groups occupying Israelite land. But in doing so, rather than proving himself clever, he's fighting battles the Lord has not given him to fight. In chapter 18 of the book of Judges, we're told the story of the tribe of Dan. The tribes of Israel, then under the leadership of Joshua, have crossed the Jordan and entered the Promised Land. Like each of the tribes, the tribe of Dan's been given a particular portion of the land to conquer and to occupy. But when they hear about the strong and fierce people who presently occupy the region that, that they've been offered, they decide that they'll look for somewhere else. So they send spies to a different part of Canaan. There they find a peaceful and unsuspecting people. So with the encouragement of a false prophet, they attack them with the sword and burn down their city. They fight a battle that God does not want them to fight against a people that God does not want them to fight against to win a land that God does not want them to have. I wonder how often we as individuals justify not committing ourselves to the tasks God has given us as a church on the grounds that, well, we do other things for the fellowship or perhaps we do other things in the wider church. I wonder how often churches find the battle that they've been given too hard so they find alternative, easier battles to fight, claiming victories for God which he's never called them to. An eighth mark of backsliding is substituting our own battles for the Lord's. Ninth, the first result of this is that David does nothing for God's people during this period. Tom Houston says, no doubt David rationalized his behavior. He was fighting Israel's enemies. He was protecting his men from Saul. He was increasing their wealth, consolidating his position after years on the run. David is at best neutral towards Israel for these 16 months. Even if he was not yet crowned, he was Israel's anointed king. How can he do nothing for the people of God? Tenth. The second result of fighting the wrong battle is dishonesty. Dishonesty with others, especially other believers, is a clear warning of having moved away from God. Verse 10, when Achish asked, where did you go raiding today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah or against the Negev of Jeremiel or against the Negev of the Kenites. Just a few verses ago, David was declaring God's truth to the man determined to kill him. Now he's dissembling to one he calls a friend. 
11th. And all of this is rooted in fear, which he's let dominate his thinking, even from before the time he came to Gath. Fear which is still driving him. Verse 11. He did not leave a man or woman alive to be brought to Gath, for he thought they might inform on us and say, this is what David did. And such was his practice as long as he lived in Philistine territory. Fear of being found out generates lies and worse, inhuman violence. Tom Houston again. David and his men prospered, but truth became a casualty. Respect for life suffered. In order to conceal his lies to Achish, people were indiscriminately massacred. For most of us, backsliding involves fear of something. Something that we feel we can protect ourselves from better than the Lord can, or more than the Lord seems willing to. Very often, this leads to dishonesty. Rarely, in our case, does it lead to violence, but often it leads directly to the mistreatment of others. David mistreats both the people he attacks and Achish. When we move away from the Lord's purposes, we always do harm to others. We don't play our part in the church. We don't bring his presence into other people's lives. We deny people the peace of God they might have encountered in us, the encouragement in faith that we might have been to them. We may not attack others, but we certainly do them harm. Backsliding means that we are of little or no help to God's people, that we are dishonest, that we are driven by fear, and maybe that we even cause harm to others, at least by omission. Twelfth, and finally, David wants to ally with the enemy a little. And it always seems possible to do that at the start. But eventually the reality becomes clear. Dabbling with the enemy always moves in the direction of full collaboration with the enemy. Verse 12. Achish trusted David and said to himself, He has become so obnoxious to his people, the Israelites, that he will be my servant for life. And then in the next chapter, in those days, the Philistines gathered their forces to fight against Israel. Achish said to David, you must understand that you and your men will accompany me in the army. David said, then you'll see for yourself what your servant can do. And Achish replied, very well, I will make you my bodyguard for life. Dale Ralph Davis says, David's ridiculous reply to Achish is ambiguous jargon, but said with a turn of braggadocio that left Achish assured. David is still faking his responses to Achish, but now he's trapped. He and his men are required to fight in the Philistine army against the men of Israel. Backsliding Turning away from a fervent faith in God inexorably leads to deeper and deeper collaboration with the enemy. So, 12 marks of backsliding, 12 indicators to look out for. 
Backsliding can happen to anyone. Being a great spiritual leader is no defense. Doubt in the Lord's provision is common to us all, and the seeds of our own plans for taking care of ourselves are never very far from the surface. We are most at risk after a great victory, a moment of great spiritual success. Backsliding is marked by relying on our own understanding rather than on a prayerful vision of reality. It involves prizing peace with the world over dependence on God, not recognizing the enemy, acting to avoid the uncomfortable aspects of the compromises we're making, and substituting our own battles for the Lord's. And when we are backslidden, at best, we're of no help to God's people, and often we cause them harm, at least by omission. We are dishonest, controlled by fear, and slipping inexorably into more and more serious collaboration with the enemy. The writer of the book of Samuel is generally inclined towards an understanding of David's point of view. Dale Ralph Davis writes, On balance, I would say that the text is sympathetic to David's difficulty and yet represents him as in the wrong. The text understands David and yet is not willing to justify all his conduct. The record of God's repeated protection should have convinced David that the Lord was able to keep him, even in Israel. Several great preachers, including those I mentioned earlier, Artie Kendall, A.W. Pink, and Charles Spurgeon, believe that the blood that David shed in this period was the reason the Lord would not allow him to build the temple later. At 1 Chronicles chapter 22 records David's words to his son Solomon many years later. My son, says David, I had it in my heart to build a house for the name of the Lord my God. But this word of the Lord came to me. You have shed much blood and have fought many wars. You are not to build a house for my name because you have shed much blood on the earth in my sight. I believe that there are times when, as a consequence of falling away from the Lord, great things that we might have done become impossible for us. Not that the Lord gives up on us, but we put ourselves in a place where certain things are no longer within our reach. If we stop running and walk for a while, let alone turn for a time and run in the opposite direction, we cannot expect to get as far as we would have done if we'd have kept running. When we survey David's life, the, the difference between his highs and his lows is readily apparent. His high points are always rooted in prayer, giving him a heavenly perspective, a, a vision of reality as it truly is in light of the sovereignty and the goodness of God. His lows are always prayerless. Throughout this period of alliance with the Philistines, there's no record of David's prayers, of him seeking the Lord or of him hearing God's word. The tradition puts no psalms in David's mouth during this period. And Tom Houston points out that all through this period, the only mention of God comes from the lips of the heathen king Achish when he naively protests David's honesty. This prayerlessness 
is related to the other great root of falling away from God. Lack of a vision of God, and more particularly, a vision of ourselves in God. When you look back over chapters 24, 25, and 26, other people declare great things about David. Jonathan, Abigail, even Saul call him righteous, the anointed of the Lord, rightful king, beloved of God. But David doesn't claim those things for himself. The most he says that is that his cause is just, that he'll be vindicated by God because he's blameless in his conduct towards Saul. It's not enough to claim to be a good person. Our identity needs to involve more than a positive view of ourselves, more than self-acceptance. Like David, we too are beloved by God. That's the bottom line in all of this. If we know we are loved by God, regardless of our many faults and failings, loved unconditionally, as we unconditionally love our own children, then we want to be near our Father and deeply involved in his purposes, not falling away from him, but drawing ever closer to him. Will you pray with me? Hosea chapter 14. Return, Israel, to the Lord your God. Your sins have been your downfall. Take words with you and return to the Lord. Say to him, forgive all our sins and receive us graciously that we may offer the fruit of our lips. Assyria cannot save us. We will not mount war horses. We will never again say our gods to what our own hands have made. For in you the fatherless find compassion. And the Lord replies, I will heal their backsliding and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Who is wise? Let them realize these things. Who is discerning? Let them understand. The ways of the Lord are right. The righteous walk in them, but the rebellious stumble in them. If the Lord has been speaking to you this morning, if you know that you've been turning away from him, perhaps in some significant way, or perhaps simply that your faith has been cooling during the pandemic, that you've not been walking closely with him, particularly if you've not been spending time in prayer. Let me encourage you to remember the Lord's love for you and his invitation to you in those words from Hosea, I will heal their backsliding and love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. Take the opportunity right now to talk with him again, to invite him to take his rightful place in your life again. Let's take a few moments in silence for you to do that. You've been listening to the First Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. 
For more sermons and information about our church's services and programs, please visit firstbc.org.